few months ago at the uh, Loveland Ministers Alliance meeting. Um, we met at the uh, local Roman Catholic Church, and the, the priest was there, not yet met uh, the priest of the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, of course, there's a, there's a large difference of beliefs between, you know, that church and most of the other churches in the ministerial alliance. Uh, and so he tried to temper that by making this statement. He said, you know, 99% of everything we believe is in common. And um, I immediately, you know, didn't agree with that statement, but uh, and I, you always think of things to say afterwards. And I, I, I sort of wanted to say, well, I'm so glad that you're this close to being a Baptist. Um, because uh, there is a wide divergence of beliefs between what we believe and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches as well as a number of other churches, not just to pick on them. Uh, and over the years, there's uh, been these no, a number of divides in the uh, Christian faith throughout Christian history due to mainly the idea of leaving God's Word and beginning to embrace human tradition and even replacing the authority of God's Word with the tradition of the church or the tradition of of uh, outside influences. And Jesus deals with this kind of idea very specifically in Mark chapter 7. And uh, we need to ask ourselves the question because I, I don't want to focus on other churches. I'm much less concerned with what other churches believe than I am what I believe and my church believes. And the temptation is always there for any one of us to diminish the Word of God and the authority of God's Word and replace it with the authority of our own beliefs and our own practices and our own traditions. In Mark chapter 7, we read in verses 1 through 5, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, this is not an issue of cleanliness. This is an issue of ritual uh, purity. And so it was a religious issue. In verse 3, Mark, Mark adds a little parenthesis. He said, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, where did this idea of all the washings come from, this religious ritual come from? Well, what happened was, in the Bible, specifically in Leviticus and other places, in the Torah, in the law, God told his people to be separate, to be holy. Be holy because I am holy. And the word holy means to be separate, to be unlike them. And so over time, part of what it meant to be unlike them developed into an idea that, well, we Jews are different than the Gentiles. We Jews are better than the Gentiles. We better not even communicate with the Gentiles. We better not touch a Gentile. We better not allow a Gentile to touch our food or it will become defiled. And so it didn't take very long for a whole series of uh, ceremonial practices to develop 
where the Pharisees and the other leaders of the Jews, the religious leaders, would continually wash their hands before meals. And not just with, with soap, but I mean just, they would do it for minutes and minutes and minutes to relieve themselves of any ritual impurities. And so they would wash their pots, they would wash their pans, they'd wash everything they had. If they went to the marketplace and bought food, they would wash that food, they'd wash their hands again. Why? Because a Gentile might have touched it. One of those dirty, nasty Gentiles might have touched my apple. And so we're going to wash that thing and we're going to wash my hands continually. And so uh, soon the religious leaders and the Pharisees in Jesus' day not only did this themselves, but they began to make it a requirement of everyone. And if you didn't practice this, then you were shamed. Then you were not being a good religious person yourself. And the religious leaders actually had a phrase for these traditions that they developed that were outside of what the Torah, what the law actually said. The phrase was that their traditions were called the fence of the law. And you know what a fence is. A fence protects your flock or a fence around your house protects your house. And, and so they would develop these fences, these traditions, that would protect, they thought, the law from being broken. Now, do we do that? Absolutely. In our own history as Baptists, we've done that. And we, we develop practices and, and traditions and beliefs that ha have uh, we've instilled in our lives over time that we think will help us refrain from breaking God's word. We put up rules that serve as a fence to God's word. And so, for example, we know that God's word says that keep physical intimacy within marriage. That's where that belongs. And so we develop a lot of rules to do that. Rules that eventually became one of our stereotypical things. No dancing. As a Baptist, you know, you don't, Baptists don't dance, right? Why is that? It's, it was a fence that was put up in order to protect us from breaking that rule. And so we do, this, we do a similar thing. Uh, likewise, um, we know that God's Word teaches us to be wise with our finances. We know that God's Word teaches us how to gain money through hard work and not through gambling, let's say. And eventually over time, Baptists historically developed another one, don't play cards. You don't play cards. And that's why the game 42, if you've ever played the game 42 with the dominoes, it was developed by Baptists here in Texas, by the way. And uh, true story. So, the, but the, the man-made rule became don't play cards. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty liberal on some of these man-made rules. And I like to play cards. And, uh, and if I could dance, I could, I'd probably dance, but I can't, so I don't. Um, but we do the same thing. We put up these man-made fences in order to protect us from breaking God's word. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? No. It's not in itself a bad thing. If you have a personal conviction and you know that if you start going down the road, you better not continue down that road um, or you will end up breaking God's law, then, then go ahead and put up a personal fence. And I, I do that. I do that specifically with poker and with blackjack. I'm good at poker and I'm good at blackjack. And I know that once I start, I'll have a hard time stopping. And I know that I can get myself in trouble. And so I don't play poker or blackjack on the computer or uh, at all. 
Um, but, you know, that's one of my personal fences that I put up for me because I know me. And now, there may be personal fences that you put up in order to protect yourself, and that's fine. There may be fences that, as a leader of your family, you put up for your family. You know, rules that you, no one in my house is going to date until they're such and such years old, or no one's going to wear, you girls aren't going to wear makeup until you're such and such years old. That's fine for your own personal beliefs. But please understand that that is not God's word. That's a personal tradition, a personal standard that you might set up, and that's between you and the Lord, and that's fine. And we must never impose our personal fences, our personal boundaries upon others and begin to treat that as if that is greater than the actual word of God. The result when the Pharisees did this, when the Pharisees began to uh, complain to Jesus and to others that they were no good because they're not washing their hands according to the traditions of the elders, you know what that actually does? It gives you a wrong attitude about people. You start to look down upon someone that may not share the same personal convictions as you, that may put up different fences than you at a certain thing. And you start looking down upon, oh, that, that person, they're, they're, they're no good. Look at what they're doing. Look what they let their kids do. And you start to turn your nose up at people. And so it's a very dangerous road. Not only that, but you begin to have a bad attitude or wrong attitude about what sin is and about what holiness is. If you and I think that holiness occurs because I don't play poker, that's, that's not it. That's, it has nothing to do with holiness. Okay? Or whatever the fence, whatever the man-made tradition or rule, principle you want to establish in your life, those outward practices do not equate to holiness. Holiness is a matter of the heart. Holiness is an inward attitude that flows out and begins to affect your outward actions. And so it, it's not just your actions, but it's your inward attitudes. As a church, we must always be willing to examine our church traditions, our programming, our practices in light of Scripture. Because Scripture, and Scripture alone, is our standard. And so the Pharisees really began to complain against Jesus and his disciples that they did not wash their hands. They ate with so-called defiled hands. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. In verse 6, Jesus replied. And notice how he replied. He quoted first the prophets, Isaiah, and then he quoted the law. Moses. Okay? He, in specifically, Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus began to rebuke these men. He called them hypocrites. In the ancient days, a hypocrite was an actor. It was someone who many times in, in Greek uh, places would put on a literal mask to portray 
somebody. They put, put on a frowny face to portray someone who's sad, or a happy face to portray someone who's happy. And, or they'd put on uh, sort of an evil mask if they were playing a dark character, or, a, or an, a real heavenly type of light mask. If We do the same thing if we're not careful. That we put masks on and we're not real with who we truly are. Jesus called them hypocrites because he knew that their outward actions were simply a mask and they had a dirty heart. And the, dirt, the dirty heart was what they really needed to deal with. And so Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, something is very, very wrong. When people practice religion and they become worse people, because of it. Something's wrong when that occurs. When religious people, and in our context, when church-going people decline into a more sorry spiritual state, something is wrong. And it occurs many times when we substitute our practices for our heart's devotion to God. In other words, hey, I go to church. I give money. I serve in a ministry. I'm a good guy. I keep the commandments. Well, guess what? A cold-hearted, bitter person can do all those things. The question is not all the outward actions. Because very cold-hearted, stone-hearted people can be religious. The question is, is your heart close to God? That's the real question. Is your heartbeat, spiritual heartbeat, that of God's? You know, if and I want you to think about this. If righteousness were all about our actions, then we could make God indebted to us by doing religious things. Think about that. If being righteous, if being holy, were all about our outward actions. Hey, God, I go to church. I do this. Look at all these religious things I do. And God, you owe me. Could be our attitude. And sometimes we've seen that in people's lives. For they become so spiritually arrogant that they believe that God owes them because they do things. The path. There's a path that religious people take. And it's a path that you don't want to go down. It's a path of being condemned by Jesus. And here's the path. And, and we see this uh, on, the, on the next slide. Number one, you teach your personal beliefs, your personal offenses, your traditions as the Word of God. Jesus said they did that. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they took the elders' commands, they took the man-made commands, and they taught them as spiritual doctrine. They taught them as God's Word. And so that first step is substituting God's Word. Secondly, there's the abandonment of God's Word. In verse 8, Jesus said, 
Here's the second thing you've done. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus told the Pharisees, you, you've absolutely, you've, it's not only that you've added something to God's word, but you've now abandoned God's word. He goes on from there in verse 9. He told them that they rejected God's word. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So not only did they add something to it, but they have abandoned God's word. And not only abandoned it, abandonment is simply walking away. It's simply sort of striving away, just sort of moving away. Maybe you don't even notice it. But at this point, they know that they've walked away from God's word, and they're happy about it, and they look back at God's word, and they say, I reject it. Jesus accused the Pharisees of going that far. And not only that, then they've nullified it. He continues in verse 10, and we'll come back to this example in a minute. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, here's what they've done. Making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Here's how bad things were. An ancient rabbi named Rabbi Eliezer wrote these words. He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the things to come. Did you catch that? This Rabbi Eliezer said, If you accept the word of God and you reject what we rabbis have said, then you're going to hell. You have nothing in the age to come. The Mishnah, which is a group of ancient Jewish traditions, says this. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. They made it very clear. God's word is down here. And their traditions are up here. And you must obey their traditions. We do the similar thing. We've done the similar thing in Christian history. And that's why we have so many denominations. You know, initially, the word of God was used to support the idea of the authority of the church. Which the church does have a kind of authority, a derived authority from God. But it is not the, the very authority of God. The church is not the absolute authority of God. It has a derived authority. Why do I say that? Because the church can be wrong sometimes. Pastors can be wrong sometimes. Elders can be wrong sometimes. And what is not wrong is God. God's word is never wrong. And so the authority that the church has is a derived authority to the degree that the church itself obeys and submits to the word of God. But over Christian time, over Christian history, in the early days of the church, there was this idea that, um, that the church itself carried the very authority of Christ, and that there was no distinction between the two. 
And so over time, as different practices began to creep into the church, and once those practices began to become accepted, then once the church, which believed itself to have all the authority, said these are the things, these are the practices that we are going to engage in, even if they contradicted Scripture, that was the authority. And there's a big list of them. Things like the baptism of unbelieving infants. That's not scriptural, but it came through church tradition. The succession of Peter's authority. Not scriptural at all. The practices of the church becoming a part of salvation. What do I mean by that? You and I in this church, when we engage in the Lord's Supper, or, or baptism for that matter, uh, we do that as a, as, a, uh, as a sign, as a remembrance. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. The Lord's Supper, when we engage in it, when we practice that, it does not obtain salvation for us. But over time, that's what began to creep into the church. That if you engage in these different things, they became sacraments. The word sacrament means things that make you holy. If you engage in these things, then you become holy and you become more acceptable to God. Things like being baptized makes you more acceptable to God, it said. These traditions said. Engaging in the Lord's Supper, or some call it Mass, um, makes you more acceptable to God. At the end of your life, last rites make you more acceptable to God. Marriage makes you more acceptable to God. Uh, there's a whole list of, of the sacraments that make you more acceptable to God. Confession to a priest makes you more acceptable to God. All of these sacraments, it was believed, makes you more acceptable to God. It's a part of your salvation. And... By extension, if you don't engage in these beliefs, then you're unacceptable to God, and then you have to spend time in a place that is also in scriptural called purgatory before you ever get worthy enough to enter into heaven. And so even those doctrines, those imaginary doctrines like purgatory, begin to creep into the idea of, uh, of the church, begin to creep into church life. Indulgences paid to the church in order to achieve forgiveness. You know, back, the whole Reformation started essentially over this, this idea of indulgences with Martin Luther, where there was a, there was a, a priest who would go around Germany, and, and he, would, he would appeal to people that their, loved, their dead loved ones were suffering in purgatory, and the only way to spring them out of purgatory and get them into heaven is if they gave donations to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And Martin Luther said... This is a sick, perverted doctrine. We must stand against this because this is not biblical. This is not what God has ordained. And so the entire Reformation began in the early 1500s because of that. So we don't hammer too much on the Jewish traditions knowing that we have a long history of our own. The lesson we learn is this. If we in our own lives are not careful, we might begin to abandon the sufficiency of Scripture and begin to accept in our own lives the wisdom of human traditions and human knowledge. Oh, God's Word says one thing, but Oprah says another. God's Word says one thing, but Dr. Oz says another. God's Word says one thing, but Hollywood says another. It's real easy to put God's Word aside and begin listening to what the world has to say and let that become a part of your own traditions. 
in your own heart. We need to be on guard against that. Jesus condemns us when we elevate our traditions and we abandon, we reject, and we nullify the Word of God. We're on dangerous ground at that point, and we should be fearful if we begin to do that. Jesus gave that example that I said we'd get back to in verse 10. It says that, that Moses said, honor your father and mother. Jesus goes back to the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is basic. This is, this is, this is huge. This is command number one when it comes to human relationships. Okay, it's number five in the list, but the first four have to do with us and God. But when it has to do with us and other humans, the very first thing Scripture mentions is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Very basic. And Jesus then points out anyone who despises his father and mother, the law says that that child should be put to death. This is how strong and how basic this understanding of honoring your father and mother is. There should be no debate about this, Jesus is saying. And yet, what have the Pharisees done? Here's what the Pharisees have done. He says in verse 11, But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. What's that talking about? When selfish grown children would not care for their elderly parents with all the goods that they might have, They'd want to get out of it. How can I get away from honoring my father and mother? Because it's going to be expensive. I know. I'll dedicate my money to God. And I'll say, this, is, this money, I know, Mom and Dad, I know you're sick. I know you're in need of housing. I know you're in need of help. But guess what? I've already given this money to God. I've gone into the into the tabernacle or I've gone into the temple and I've declared that this money is now dedicated to God. So, Mom and Dad, you can't have it. I'm sorry. Good luck. God bless you. But you can't have it. It is korban, given to God. And what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Look closely at verse 12. He says, Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. In other words... The guy who just did that to his mom and dad, he starts feeling bad. Mom's getting worse. Ah, I, I really got to help mom out. I'm going to use some of that money to help mom out. That'd be honoring to mom, wouldn't it? And the Pharisees come along. They say, no. You've given it to God. We don't allow you to help your mom and dad. It's our money now. Thank you. Jesus said, Many such things you do. You have made void. You've nullified the simplest idea in all of Scripture. Honor your mom and dad. You've made it void because of your own traditions. And so Jesus rebuked them. And then I love this in verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Okay, get this picture. The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're having this, and Jesus rebukes them. They're having this conversation. And Jesus says to the crowd, 
Everybody gather around. I got something I want you all to know. Not only does he rebuke them, he's going to call them out in front of everybody. He gathers the whole community around. He brings them all in, and he's going to expose them for who they are. He brings all the people to him, and he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He tells the entire crowd this principle. There are no unclean foods. Don't listen to these guys. There are no unclean foods. You don't have to obey these archaic man-made traditions anymore. What defiles a man is what comes out of him. Words, actions, those things defile a man. And he'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. What are, what are you talking about, Jesus? They wanted some more clarification. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? They still didn't get it. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? He's talking about spiritual heart, not physical heart. It enters his, his stomach and is expelled. Thus, Mark says, he declared all foods clean. And he said in verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, Foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. You know, it's hard to change our traditions. Peter had a hard time with this. Jesus said, All, all foods are clean. What happened years later? Peter's still living in a kosher house, still following these old rules. Still not eating with Gentiles, even Gentile Christians, until a friend called him out on it. Until Paul came along and said, you're wrong. Love your brother, but you're wrong. Paul confronted him, showed him the way, showed him the error of his ways, and I'd say this. Paul loved him enough to tell him he was wrong. And Peter acknowledged that and repented of that. And lived the right way, not wanting to harm other Christians anymore. You know, the essence of what we're learning in, in, this, in this story is something that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when the Lord was appointing a new king over Israel. And the Bible says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God looks upon our hearts and it is our hearts that we have to guard it is our hearts that produce all kinds of fruit be it good or evil well how do you get that good fruit to come out of your heart you've got to feed your heart the right resources and the resource is the word of god and prayer you've got to be a man you've got to be a woman of of the word of god You've got to be a man or woman of prayer. 
because it is our substance. It is our, it is our essence of what we are as believers. And so let's guard our hearts this day.